Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. There is one more week in the series, Messy Christmas, that we've been in the past few weeks. And uh, to catch you up, if you've slept since then or you haven't been with us, uh, we're basically acknowledging throughout this season that not only is it Christmas season, not only are we like just a few days away from it, but this season in the church is a season called Advent. And Advent is a season that is all about waiting and anticipating and preparing for Jesus to arrive in a new way. It goes back to the very first Christmas where uh, God effectively went silent for like four to 500 years and the people were waiting and wondering if God was gonna speak, if God was gonna show up, if God was gonna keep his promises. And so what we try to intentionally do during this season is to do the same. It's to wait, it's to wonder, it's to prepare and to lean in. And uh, I feel like this like little window of time we have between now and Christmas is actually a pretty good picture of what Advent is all about. Because if you're like me, you're probably feeling the, oh no, it's Christmas feeling. All of you are clearly more responsible than me and you already have it all under control and that's amazing. For me, I'm like, did I do any shopping? Like, (laughs) are we ready? I need to go wrap something, I'm sure. Uh, Your service is gonna happen. I don't know, it's just like all there, but it's like that looking forward, that anticipating, that preparing that needs to happen. That's what Advent is all about. And uh, we've been using this book to guide our conversation. It's the book Honest Advent. And again, if you're like me and you've seen that book on this screen three weeks in a row and you're like, man, that looks good. And Advent's like over basically today. (laughs) I never got the book. You can still get it. And it's a great resource for next year because there's these 25 meditations throughout this book, Honest Advent, that try and do what the title says. They try and look at like the Advent story in the midst of our real life, real world things that we're facing. Sometimes Christmas can feel sanitized and it can feel hallmarked and like perfect and out there. But what Scott Erickson, the author of this book, has done, what we've tried to do over these few weeks together, is we've tried to acknowledge that at the heart of Christmas, there is this sacred story about all kinds of messy stuff, things like family and and pregnancy and travel and uncertainty, and and on and on it goes. And at the heart of all of that is this invitation and, and this incredible reality that God can actually be with us in the midst of whatever we may be experiencing. And so really quick, I'm gonna catch you up with where we've been the past three weeks, and then we'll jump into something new today. On week one, uh, we talked about the idea of vulnerability. And what we said is that all real connection requires vulnerability. I would be willing to bet if you've ever been through middle school, you probably met somebody who refused to be vulnerable, like they were always just like perfectly poised version of themselves, and you probably don't still hang out with them, right? Because there's like nothing really there beyond the surface or the presented version. That's because all real connection requires vulnerability, whether that's at work or in a significant relationship or certainly as it relates to our faith. Eventually, the false version of each of us fails, and what we're left with is the real us, the vulnerable us. And what we said on week one is the incredible reality of Christmas is that the word of God, like God who existed before everything, God who created everything, he chose to incarnate through human vulnerability. He was born into this world as a baby in a manger, just like you and I were born, just like we went through that whole vulnerable process and the process of growing up, that that is how God chose to reveal himself to us. And that's so significant. That means that God wants to connect with us, again, because he got vulnerable. And so the question that we asked on week one isn't does God want to connect with us, but it's how do we connect with God? And what we said this season is that in the same way that the word of God was incarnated through human vulnerability, 
we can connect with Jesus through that very same human vulnerability. When we're willing to admit that we have needs, when we're willing to acknowledge what we don't know, when we're willing to go to God and say, hey, I'm a mess, like I don't have it together, God actually meets us in that vulnerable moment. So that was week one. Uh, Week two, we took it a little farther and we drew this connection between vulnerability and love that oftentimes uh, we pick up along the way that love is something we have to earn, that you have to be good enough, and if you do enough good things and don't do all the bad things, then you'll be loved and accepted. But on week two, what we said is that that's not actually how God's love works at all, that God's love isn't earned. God's love is a gift that we receive, and each one of us has it from the very beginning. There's nothing you can do that is so bad it will make God not love you, and there's nothing you can do that's so good that it'll make God love you anymore. It is this gift that we receive, and Christmas shows us that God's love often shows up in unexpected places. And so last week, we teased that out a little further, and we talked about some of the assumptions that we tend to make around the Christmas season, that uh, a lot of the times we fill in the gap with what our limited knowledge we have is, and some assumptions are good, some assumptions are helpful, some assumptions not so much, but uh, the most dangerous kinds of assumptions that we can make this season are assumptions about who's invited to participate in the story of Christmas and who's not. Again, about who's good enough and maybe who's not, about who God wants to use and who God doesn't want to use. And what we said as we wrapped up last week is that who we are, who you are in the eyes of God, who you ultimately and really are, is deeper than where you find yourself in this moment. That if your life looks like a mess or if you're like a little more messy than any of us want to acknowledge, God still sees you, he still has value for you, and he still invites you to participate in the story as well. So today, uh, we're going to keep going and we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. We're going to hone in on an idea that's really at the heart of what Christmas is all about, about what the incarnation is about. And it's this idea of like embodiment, that God who, like we can't see right now, right? God who existed everything, God who seems so out there and so other, that God actually chose to put on human flesh, that God became embodied, or again, the word that we've used several times along the way is that God was incarnated, that word, uh, it, like if you drill down on the Latin, the carn part of incarnation, it literally is like where we get the words like carnal or carne asada. Like it's like flesh and meat and like <laughs> present and physical. Thank you for paying attention. Uh, yeah, so like God literally stepped into a body. God became embodied in our world, in the realities that you and I face every single day. And uh, I know that's something, like, you're probably not like, wow, I didn't know that was part of the Christmas story, Eric. It's like 101 level Christmas, right? But it is so important. It it is so essential to an accurate understanding of what Christian faith is really all about that I wanted to take a whole weekend here as we kind of wrap up and jump into Christmas together to focus on the power of the reality that God became embodied, that God became incarnate, that he became one of us. And I think it's important to clarify this because often the role of the body and the role of the physical world is downplayed by the church. Like often our physical existence, like you and me right here right now and all the aches and pains and all the great stuff about us too, like often that is downplayed by the church and there's this kind of notion that the church is just supposed to focus on spiritual things. Right? Like sometimes if we do a series that's a little too practical for people, or in other words, it's about something they don't like, like politics or generosity or the environment or whatever, I'll get feedback like that. Like, hey, what are you doing? Like the church isn't supposed to be in all that lesser stuff. You're supposed to be up here in, in spiritual world. And this idea that there's this separation between our physical reality and our spiritual reality, it's, it's not a new idea. 
Uh, maybe along the way you've heard that like this world is evil and, and our bodies are broken and our only hope is to like just wait and wait for Jesus to come and take us away from this wicked place. Uh, there's certainly some truth to some of that notion, but this idea that there's this deep divide between our physical reality and the deeper spiritual reality, this is an old, old argument. It's an old debate that has been around. It is not a new tension that exists in the church, but it's actually one of the earliest debates that happened in the church movement. And uh, for just a second, I'm going to get a little nerdy and a little heady, and we're going to talk about a couple of theological terms, okay? But I believe in you. You can handle it. Uh, because this movement that started, it was this movement called Gnosticism. And the thing about Gnosticism, it was never like an organized religion, like there's Christianity and there's Judaism. Gnosticism never went that far. In fact, we don't know a ton about the Gnostics or the people who identify themselves in this way. Uh, there's little threads of church leaders like the Apostle Paul who wrote a good chunk of scripture uh, actually kind of arguing against Gnostic thoughts, which I'll tell you what that means in just a second. But basically what we know about the Gnostics and about the way that they thought, we know from the early church fathers who were criticizing them. So what this is kind of like for us, it's like if your only picture of what a Democrat was like is if you asked a Republican or vice versa, if you want to go that way, like you would get some truth, right? But you also might get some extra things thrown in about how those people are and the way that it works. That's kind of what we know from the church fathers about Gnosticism. They were this uh, kind of different approach to faith and spirituality that was challenging uh, the view of early Christianity. And so they put them down and they criticized them. But what we do know is that the Gnostics were people who believed that the pathway to salvation, the pathway to connecting with God, was to obtain some kind of secret knowledge. Uh, that's what the gnosis part in Greek, uh, where we get Gnosticism, it translates to knowledge, to knowing. So the Gnostics believed that salvation was gained by getting this knowledge that's not available to most people. Uh, in fact, if you really like pay attention and you watch the History Channel, and like around the early 2000s, uh, there was the Gospel of Judas that was found. Some of you maybe remember that. That was a Gnostic gospel because it was this different account of Jesus' life, but it was through the lens that Judas was like secretly in on something with Jesus that none of the other people knew about, and it told a whole different story. Uh, so this idea was swimming around in the early church that salvation was gained through higher knowledge and borrowing from the philosophy the philosopher Plato, uh, the, the smart guy in Greece, not the stuff you play with that's kind of salty, uh, they taught this idea that redemption can actually happen through nurturing your intellect. That if you nurtured your mind enough, if you learned enough, or you separated from your body enough, you could actually be saved and you could be redeemed. But that involved downplaying our embodied physical existence. Essentially, they believed, in fact, at its most extremes, some of the Gnostics believed that there were actually two gods, that there was the God over the spiritual realm, and he was perfect and idealized, and then there was this lesser God who was over our physical realm, and he was broken and corrupt. And they, they had this idea that everything physical, everything earthy was bad and needed to be dismissed, and that the true path to connecting with God and to living a meaningful life was to ascend to the spiritual realm, this ideal realm up here. And eventually, through some of this line of thinking, this concept evolved into a way of thinking known as dualism. And if you're here and you're like a black and white thinker, like you like things really clearly spelled out, dualism is your thing, man. Because what dualism is, is simply black and white. It's like neatly organizing two categories, this and that, and, and having two things that, that are held together. And dualism, 
it's been an amazing thing, like the Enlightenment, if you remember that period in history, they grabbed onto that idea, it brought us things like the flush toilet, like I'm a big fan of some of what dualism has done in the world, but at its most extremes, this idea of separating things, of categorizing things, of dualism, it's really dangerous for our faith. And one of the most extreme examples of this came through the church's response to the separation between the physical world and the spiritual world. That there's the things of man and there's the things of God. And that man and physicality is lesser and that spirituality and the things up there are better. Again, I would be willing to bet some of us in the room have heard some kind of thread of this, right? That this world is broken and, and eventually I'll fly away, oh glory, and like it's going to be good, right? Like we picked up this along the way. And although Gnosticism was really, really heavily rejected by the early church, I mean, again, the church fathers put these guys down. They're like, no, that is not the way. Its influence has significantly influenced many of our worldviews today. And it's significant, significantly influenced the way that we think about faith. And I'm harping on this so much because it really does have practical bearing on how we live and relate to each other and this world and ultimately how we relate to God as well. Because the miracle of Christmas is that God became embodied. That this separation, if there ever was one, between the spiritual world and the physical world, it ended when this baby was born that was somehow mysteriously fully God and fully man, that Jesus believed the physical world wasn't lesser, but it was worth entering into, that Jesus chose to become incarnate. He chose to become one of us. And, and there's another author uh, whose book I read several years ago, but I keep coming back to it. His name is uh, Ronald Rollheiser, which is a great theologian name, isn't it? It just sounds like an old man in his study, like writing stuff. Uh, but Ronald Rollheiser, he uh, talks about spirituality. He has this book called The Holy Longing. And in it, he actually makes the argument pretty early on that understanding the incarnation, understanding God's embodiment is actually the pathway to real Christian spirituality. That if you want to connect with God, you have to somehow wrap your head around this idea of incarnation. And he says this, that we miss the incarnation's meaning by not seeing its immensity. And I think what he means by that is often, as we celebrate Christmas, as we think about this piece of the story, uh, it's almost like we get this mindset that the incarnation was this like blip in human history where God did this 33-year-old experiment where like he tried on a body for a little bit and then we know how that turned out, and then he rose again, and he's back up in like the spiritual realm where he belongs. Like the incarnation was this little thing that happened once through the life of Jesus, but doesn't happen anymore. But that couldn't be further from the power and the truth of the Christmas story. The power and the truth of Christmas is that God has chosen to reveal himself in and through this world, that God chose to reveal himself among us. And, and you know this, right? We just don't always give ourselves permission to say this that human beings, you and me, we are both material and immaterial. We are both physical and spiritual. And what Christmas tells us is that every part of us is important to God. Every part of that experience of being a human matters to God. And I think what happens, we've talked about this again along the way in the series, often Christmas gets sanitized for us. Right? It's all pretty on the lawn with the nativity set, and if you turn on Hallmark, it's nice and happy. But What's actually hopeful about Christmas, what's actually engaging about Christmas, isn't how perfect that scene was. I think what's most inviting about Christmas for most of us, if we're honest, is how messy and chaotic that scene was, how scandalous that scene was. That If you remove the sanitized ideal vision, you get the reality of God's messy participation in our real world, that God actually showed up 
amongst the mess. And, and if you like, feel like you're supposed to subscribe to the sanitized version of Christmas, what we often get is this notion that we're supposed to clean up our weaknesses to approach God. Right? We have to look as pretty as that nativity set if God's going to show up this year. That's what we can often pick up along the way. But the real story of Christmas shows that God brings his presence and God brings salvation through the messy details. That God shows up in the midst of the mess. And I was thinking about this. I'm not going to go too far into this because I feel like most weeks of this series, I've talked about birthing and made everybody a little uncomfortable. So I'm not going to like push it too far today. <laughs> um, but I want to remind you again of the reality of giving birth in the first century. It was not like the doctor was hanging out with Mary and Joseph with the schedule of weeks and like telling them how it was going to go. It, it wasn't that organized. It was much more chaotic. And I was thinking about this. Uh, I was thinking about my brother. So uh, he had a kid before I did. Uh, my nephew, Colin, uh, was born five or six years ago. Five? Five. Okay. I thought it was five, but we'll clean that up for the second service. Five <laughs> years ago, uh, my nephew Colin was born. But I remember about the story of Colin being born, uh, specifically because I can pick on my brother, is my brother almost missed it. And the reason my brother almost missed it is because uh, my sister-in-law Megan was in labor, and my brother was hungry, and so he left <laughs> and went across the street to IHOP, <laughs> and like on his own, was like, this is going to be a while. I guess I'll get some pancakes. And he's sitting there, and then suddenly, like, I think Megan called him, like, in labor, like, hey, buddy, <laughs> time to go. And so he had to, like, pack it all up and get back in, and, and he made it in time. Like, it was amazing. But here's my point. In the first century, it wasn't calculated like that, okay? Joseph wasn't hanging out at IHOP. <laughs> Joseph wasn't, like, just kicking the tires. It was chaotic. It was stressful. It was uncertain. It was risky, and it was messy, in fact, uh, I don't want to go too far into this because, again, I don't want to gross you out or anything, but there's a chapter in uh, Honest Advent, that book by Scott Erickson. He just titled it Goop. <laughs> yeah, it's gross, right? But if you've been around, like, the whole birthing experience, it's kind of goopy, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, there's some grossness involved, and I'm not going to, like, make you sick or drill down on it too much, but what I want you to get today is Jesus arrived in the midst of that. Jesus arrived in the midst of the mess, and what that means is that there's actually the sacredness in our embodiment and in our physicality, in all the stuff that we want to be ashamed of and hide and push down. Jesus was found in the muck with the rest of us. Jesus showed up in the midst of that, and I love how Ronald Rollheiser goes on talking about the incarnation and the power of it, not just as a one-time event, but as this reality through which we can experience God today, he says it like this, and I think this is so powerful. Like, like if I could just take this paragraph and have you sit on it for the next week, I think I would because there's so much in it. He says, God takes on flesh so that every home becomes a church and every child becomes the Christ child and all food and drink become a sacrament. God's many faces are now everywhere in flesh, tempered and turned down so that our human eyes can see him. God in his many-faced face has become as accessible and visible as the nearest water tap. And that is the why of the incarnation. See, this is a big deal because it means that God will show up in the midst of it all, that God and his presence are waiting to be revealed to you all around you, and often we think it's got to look perfect. Often we think it's like in these walls, right, or, or on the other side of a microphone. But the incarnation means God can be found everywhere if you're willing to look for him, that the presence of Christ is all throughout this world, that Christmas, when Jesus arose, uh, arrived as this little baby, it, it wasn't just a one-time 33-year-old miracle. It wasn't just this like little snapshot. 
But Christmas was the inauguration of a brand new kingdom with a brand new king who was here to rule once and for all. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. And what it means is that our physical world and the spiritual world are integrated. They're connected. Just like you are both a body and a soul, your physical reality and your spiritual reality are integrated. And our physical embodiment matters to God. And that's why Paul speaks with an authority about it uh, to the early church. We usually hear this, talk to middle schoolers and high schoolers to get them to stay away from each other. But in 1 Corinthians, here's what Paul says. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And often, I think I've heard that presented with like a scolding tone, right? Like, watch out, honor God with your body, guys. But if you understand the incredible reality of what Paul is explaining, it's the miracle of the incarnation. It should be read and it should be understood with this incredible reverence that Paul is saying, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That at one time, God was contained in the temple, in this one place, but now God is on the move and he is as present in the you next to you as he is anywhere else. That he is present in each of our lives if we receive him. And that means you're not your own, but you should honor God through your physical reality, through your body. See, what Jesus wants this season from each of us, especially as it relates to our physicality and this world that we find ourselves in, Jesus doesn't just want admiration. Jesus wants imitation. Jesus doesn't want us to just admire that the incarnation happened. He actually invites us to, in a fresh way this year, incarnate him once again through the way that we live our lives, through the way that we approach this world that we live in. We're supposed to embody God in the same way that Jesus did. And Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to make that possible in our lives. It is a crazy reality, and it is often overlooked but it is the calling on every Jesus follower's life to embody the presence of God right here and right now. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but when Jesus lived on this earth, he put value and dignity in physicality, value and dignity in this physical world. I mean, we've talked a lot. He like entered into it. That's a pretty big step in and of itself. He chose to become one of us. Uh, Luke goes on shortly after the Christmas story and says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature that he grew up, he became a little boy and eventually a teenager and he went through that whole process. It was good enough for God to become like a preteen boy. That's a miracle in and of itself, right? Uh, Jesus' ministry had so much physicality wrapped up in it. He met practical needs, like the whole miracle of feeding the 5,000, right? He fed people. That's a physical act. You physically eat. It takes care of a physical need. He healed people from sickness, He touched people that nobody else touched. At one point, he even resurrected his best friend, Lazarus, one of his best friends. And and here's the point. It's not like that was an ultimate thing that he did. Everybody that he fed got hungry again. The people that he healed, I don't think they're with us, right? Like Lazarus isn't just still out there somewhere. (laughs) Eventually, he, he died again. But Jesus, I think, in those acts was showing people that their circumstance matters to him, that he could heal them that their physicality had meaning, that sickness should be healed, that hunger should be fed, that people should be seen and acknowledged. And ultimately, he put that on display through his sacrifice on a cross when he took his physical body and allowed it to be sacrificed 
on our behalf so that we could have a way to connect with him. And in light of all of that, this is the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to those of us who want to follow God. He says, imitate God, therefore. Remember, it's not admire God, it's not applaud God. Imitate God, therefore, in everything that you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Here's the point of all this today. Okay, the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus' embodiment, it began with Jesus, but it never stopped. It never stopped. It's not this little blip on the radar where God like tried on humanity for a little bit and then took off. It was this invitation for all of us to find God in our midst, to find God among our mess. And we embody Jesus' incarnation when we choose to live a life marked by love, marked by love that is really love, including a love for this physical world in which we inhabit, that this world actually matters to God. And listen, there's like a whole other series pent up in me, I think, about this and how important it is. I'm not going to go there today, but this world does matter to God. The story of scripture, if you really read through it, it's not like this thing's here for now and it's going to burn up and we don't care about it. It's that God somehow redeems all of it. We get a snapshot of that at Easter. And again, I'm getting too far down the road here. But like Jesus' resurrected body shows up. And it is somehow physical and somehow greater than that because there's this integration between our physical reality and our spiritual reality. And the point that I want to make today is that God wants to meet you in this season by showing up in whatever reality you find yourself in, whatever physical state your body is in, God wants to show up in that. Whatever your financial reality is, God wants to show up in that. Whatever your relational reality is, God wants to show up in that because this life and this world matter to him. Physicality and separality, spirituality, they're not these separate things. They're integrated. And so what I want to do, just real quick with the rest of our time, uh, I want to wrap up by maybe reminding you or inviting you into what I would call embodied spiritual practices, spiritual practices that we can do that help us connect with God, that don't deny our physicality, that don't try and remove us from being human beings in this world, but they actually leverage our physicality as a pathway to connect with God. Because what you do in your body affects your soul and your spirit and vice versa. How your soul is is going to impact how your body is. And so, again, really quickly, I'm going to like ride a flaw four different ways uh, really five different ways that we can physically experience the presence of God this season. And the first, uh, it's a really simple thing, but we don't talk about it a lot in church world. It's this practice known as breath prayers. And, and what a breath prayer is, I mean, if you Google it, you'll find all kinds of like little prompts. But essentially what you do is you inhale and you exhale. And as you do it, you say a little prayer that goes along with that physical act. As you inhale, you, you take something in. And as you exhale, you release something. And just for a second, like, pay attention to your breath right now. Like, breathe in and breathe out. Isn't that remarkable how, like, just that moment kind of pulls you into right here and right now? Like, things like breathing and our heartbeat, they're just things that happen, like, naturally. We don't stop and think about it. But when you do, isn't it amazing how it pulls you into the moment? It centers you when you pay attention to the feeling of your heart beating in your chest, or your breath in your lungs. Paying attention is one of the like, most central spiritual practices you can learn along the way. And paying attention to our breathing helps us to do that. Because so often what happens, if you want to pay attention to God, 
your mind often won't let you, will it? If your mind's like mine, like you're just too busy and you're just going and going and going. I felt this on Friday. Um, after I got done helping here, slinging the sodas, I was tired. And uh, Friday, I'm with my daughter. And so we were at the house and she has a nap time still, thankfully. So I'm like, she's going down for a nap. I'm going down for a nap. We've got a puppy, but I threw it in the crate. I'm like, this is my time. And I laid down and I got on my phone and I scrolled <laughs> and I scrolled. And I thought about what else we had to do for Christmas, right? I was like, did I buy any gifts? Have I wrapped anything? The answer is no. And then, like, I was thinking and thinking, and then I heard on the monitor, Eden's crying. And I looked at the clock, and I'm like, nap time's over. And I didn't do what I set out to do. I was tired, but I didn't take the time to rest. It's because our minds can so easily distract us, even from the things that we know we ultimately need. And this practice of paying attention to your breathing as a form of prayer, it helps center you in the moment. And this isn't just some like woo-woo kind of thing. This is actually like baked in to how people have experienced God for years. The, the Hebrew word for breath is the very same word found throughout scripture for the wind and for the spirit. The word is ruach. And if you go through and you look at it in scripture, it shows up in a ton of different places. The, the ruach of God is what was hovering over the waters in the creation story. Ruach is what God breathes into Adam's lungs to, to bring him to life. Ruach is, is the counsel and the wisdom that showed up to prophets like Isaiah, guys who predicted Jesus. And, and in fact, that very same word, Ruach, is what shows up on the other side of Jesus' baptism. Jesus' beginning of his ministry, essentially. He's baptized, and the text says that the spirit descended like a dove. That word is Ruach. It's the same word for our breath. And, and in fact, to drill that down even further, Throughout the Old Testament, there is a name that's presented for God. Uh, it's the name Yahweh, or sometimes it's pronounced Yahweh. Uh, but in most traditions, most Orthodox Jewish traditions, the name's not pronounced at all because it's considered so sacred. It's not meant to be spoken. It, it's meant to be mysterious and holy. And as it's written down or as it's explained, uh, often it's just written essentially as like vowels that existed in the Hebrew language. Uh, many rabbis think that it was written just as these vowels and what they believed was that these vowels that were meant to describe God were kind of like breathing sounds. And that the name of God was kind of unpronounceable because it was essentially the same as the sound of breathing. You can even kind of hear it if you try and do your best Hebrew today. Like the word Yahweh broken down into its vowels as it was often written is yad he va he You hear it? Yad, hey, va, hey. And what that means, like if that's true, how powerful is it that the very name of God might be on our lips every single day through the sound of our breathing, just through our very being. And what we often do is we fail to pay attention to it. We fail to pay attention to how near God is to us. And since we're heading up to Christmas, imagine the power of that in the midst of the incarnation story. Jesus arrives as a little baby and if you've been a parent, right, you know like one of the things you worry about the most when there's a little baby around is are they still breathing? <laughs> and, and sometimes uh, you'll like lay the baby on your chest and, and you're laying there with them and this kind of incredible thing happens where you feel them breathing and they feel you breathing and you kind of get in sync. Can you imagine what that was like for Mary and for Joseph to hear that yad, hey, ba, hey of Jesus right there in sync with them? My point is that God is often nearer than we stop to recognize. And, and so this practice of a breath prayer, again, I'm not like spelling out any specific ones today. You can Google them if you want to like try this out. 
But the idea is that we slow down. We pay attention to our breath and center ourselves physically while we reflect on where God is at and where we're at spiritually. It's this integration of the two. God is willing to be that present with us. And maybe that's a practice that can lead you into this Christmas season over this next week. A second thing that we can do, uh, which this is like the most absurd countercultural thing to talk about the week of Christmas, okay, and I get that. I'm not practicing this one well right now, but I do believe it's important. It's the practice of silence and solitude. It's the practice of actually getting away and slowing down. Uh, It's creating space for your body to rest and to receive that presence of God that I'm talking about. This is countercultural for us, us Americans. It is very countercultural at Christmas time for us to stop at any point whatsoever. But Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he does this kind of unique thing. I told you he was baptized, and then the Spirit of God descended like breath onto him. And the text goes on Luke says, Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River where he was baptized. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all of that time and became very hungry. So what I'm asking you to do is eat nothing for 40 days and go out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. No, not at all. I don't think that's really great advice for us. But I do think it's remarkable that at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right, his baptism was like a commissioning, like go out and go be who I made you to be is essentially what God says to Jesus in that moment. And so he goes into the desert by himself. He pursues solitude and fasting as his very first move. And in fact, a lot of scholars think that Jesus was out there in the wilderness reflecting on the book of Deuteronomy because when the devil shows up and starts challenging him, he starts quoting Deuteronomy left and right back to the devil. And the point is that like rest and solitude can be spiritual things. They're physical things for sure, but they can be spiritual things. And so often we find ourselves in the midst of this season, go, 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 go. And we never stop to receive and to remind ourselves of what we're celebrating in the first place. (laughs) Pastor Steve Poe, who uh, was the lead pastor at Northview, where we were a part of for quite a while, he says this before, and I think it's really true, that sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is take a nap. You can take that to the bank if you want to take a good Sunday nap today. Like, I'm going to do that. But really, sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is rest. It's slow down. It's to stop trying to have it all together because you're not the one who holds it all together. That's not your job. Just like your breathing happens naturally without you controlling it usually, right? Like, it's not your job. So another spiritual practice maybe you need this season is to carve out time intentionally and deliberately to rest, to consider how you can experience God in your body, not just in your head, not just in a church building, but in your everyday rhythms of life. Two more really quick and we'll wrap up. Uh, Another way that we can practice like the physicality of our faith is actually through the practice of generosity. And and I put this one in here mostly so I can brag on you guys uh, because you were so amazing with our Christmas compassion tree that we put together. Uh, We set it out there. I was like, I hope people take the tags. Y'all took so many in the first service that we had to call and like get another family to support and put that on the tree. And then everybody took all of those. We got the gifts, we delivered them. And and I don't know if you like stopped to think about that, but that was a practical way that you met physical needs this season. That, That you practiced generosity and what for you maybe looked like some dollars and some time for a little boy and for a little girl looked like Christmas happening. And that's an incredible thing. It's an incredible way that you embodied God in their lives, whether you ever meet them or know them or not. And so this one's just a simple reminder to keep your eyes out for that this season. 
that for many of us, right, we're doing our thing, we're crazy trying to wrap the gifts and buy the gifts and have the right food and have the great experience. But there's other people that this is the hardest season of the year for them, that they're just going through something and they need somebody who can help them out. Somebody can have an eye out for them. Maybe for you this season, another act of generosity is the way that you can make Christ incarnate in somebody's life this season. Last one, uh, before we do something together here, there's the practice of community. And again, that seems kind of obvious around Christmas time. It's what we love about Christmas time, coming together and celebrating with family and with friends and embodiment and physical presence. It's all over it. Some of us were like, yeah, that's the problem. My family is going to be there. But like it, we all enjoy the power of coming together, of being seen and being known. But again, there are people in this community, countless people in this community, who this is the hardest season for, who don't feel seen, who don't feel known, who don't feel supported. And I think we all got a taste of what that was like if you can rewind two years, right? Remember 2020? Maybe by Christmas you were over it and you were like doing your thing. But remember Easter of 2020? <laughs> like we weren't with our families. We were isolated and it, the health scare was one thing, but the isolation I think was maybe the hardest part. It, being separate from one another, things not feeling the way that they ought to. Friends, there are people in this community that that's still a reality for. It has nothing to do with COVID. It maybe it's their life circumstances or, or choices that they've made or just things that have happened to them. What if for you this season, you made Christ incarnate by showing up in the midst of their mess, by reaching out to that friend that you know is having a hard time, by showing up in their life? Or what if you had the courage, if that's you this season, if it's hard, what if you had the courage to say, hey, I need someone, and you reached out to a friend? See, community is another way that we can embody Jesus this season to one another. And finally, like I said, there's four things we can do, but we're going to do a fifth one together. And uh, as you walked in, hopefully you saw uh, we had our communion cups out. Because this is another physical and spiritual practice. In fact, it's a thing, uh, it's known as a sacrament. It's like this unique space where God shows up in the midst of something physical, but in a spiritual way. And we don't often talk about it in those terms. Often here we talk about it in a really symbolic way. But as we receive communion together, one, if you didn't get one of these, like throw your hand up and uh, we'll be sure. Yeah, some of you guys, Lindsay, could you help me out? Thank you, CJ, cool, yeah. Um, if you just want to throw your hand up, Lindsay will get those your way. Thank you guys. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about this because like anything else we do as worship, communion can sometimes become a routine. It can become regular. But the God who cared about you and your reality so much that he put on a human body, right, that he became a little baby, he cared about you so much that he sacrificed that body on a cross so that you would have the invitation to become his body, right? This embodied God who showed up in a manger sacrificed his life, his body, on your behalf so that we could be known as a part of his body, the church, that we could carry his presence with us everywhere we go. And, and we don't talk about the gritty details all that often. Uh, again, just like birth, death is a painful thing sometimes for us to think about. But if you think about Jesus' life, he was born in obscurity, in a manger, a little naked baby like all of us were, right? Just showed up and he died, shamed and obscured. The Romans stripped his clothes off of him and hung him up on a cross. And it was meant to be a mockery of him. But what it really was, I think, was a display of incredible vulnerability that Jesus chose to enter into our mess and he chose to sacrifice himself so that we could have a relationship with him. Or the Apostle Paul writes it in this way. 
in the book of Philippians. He says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, but instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So in just a second, we're going to receive these elements together. And actually right now, I want to invite you, uh, if you'll pull back that top layer and grab the wafer. When Jesus gathered his followers together on the last week of his life, he told them to practice this practice of communion, to take bread and to see it broken and to remember that it represents his body broken on your behalf. But maybe this Christmas season for you, it means remembering that Jesus wants to enter into your mess. It means receiving him in all of your broken parts, in all of the messy areas of your life. And so I want to invite you with me to take and eat and remember the broken body of Christ on your behalf. stop there. He said his body would be broken to meet us in all of our broken places. And then he took a cup and he said, take and drink from this cup. And when you drink of it, remember the new covenant or the new kind of relationship that I want to have with you. It's that relationship that I was describing earlier, where every single one of us becomes a little temple of the Holy Spirit, where God's presence can actually dwell in us and move through us. And so I want to invite you this Christmas season as we remember the God who became embodied and present for each of us to take and to drink and remember that God wants to move and incarnate in your life in a fresh way this season. So together, take and drink in remembrance of him. Let me wrap up by praying for you. God, we want to experience you in a new way this season. And I know what we're talking about. It can feel way up here and kind of heady and theological, but I pray that you drill it right down into our hearts this season. That we would understand that you care so much about our present reality, that you entered into it and you want to enter into it in a new way again. So God, for my friends in the room with broken places in their lives, which by the way is all of us, I pray that you would meet them in that space that we wouldn't hide our messy, broken selves from you, but that we would be vulnerable and open and willing to receive the love that you so freely give. God, help us to receive the gift of your forgiveness in a fresh way and to understand that you love us enough to be one of us, to be God with us. And God, as we leave this place, as we head into another Christmas celebration, time with family and friends, I pray that our eyes would be open to see you everywhere. Maybe we would do some of these new practices, things like paying attention to our breathing or taking a moment to rest. And in that, that we would find you and we would experience you. Keep our eyes open to people in need that, that we could meet, people longing for community that we could come alongside. And God, help us, all of us here at Story Church, those of us who wanna follow you this season, help us to embody you, to bring your presence right here in Peru, Indiana everywhere we go and to everyone that we meet. And God, may that be our greatest Christmas celebration this year. 
We pray and ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.